How many of you have had a, a lunch, a dinner, or a casual conversation just about their family and hobbies and things like that with your insurance agent in the last two months? If you'd raise your hand, you've had a casual conversation, done some fun, maybe rode bikes, went to a movie with your insurance agent the last two months. Anybody? Wow. So maybe that's not the best profession to go into if you need friends, right? But sometimes we think that, you know, salvation and, and knowing Christ is kind of like insurance. We want to make sure that, that in the end that we're covered. We want to make sure that, you know, for all of eternity that at least we have a secure place in heaven. However, until then, sometimes the thought is, well, I really don't need to, to talk with my insurance agent a whole lot unless I need to renew my policy or, or something like that. Uh, we had an insurance agent in Sao Paulo for many years. Of course, the city is over 20 million people, so I don't even remember how she was recommended to us, but she handled our insurance uh, for a number of years, probably seven or eight years. I don't even remember her name. I never met her face-to-face. In fact, if she walked in this morning, I would not recognize her because I never saw her picture, or face-to-face. I would only call her about once a year, and that was to renew our policy, and we mainly talked insurance. She didn't come over to our house. We didn't do things together as families. I have no idea in the city where she lived, uh, but I did not have a relationship with that insurance agent. Yet, I wanted the insurance. I wanted to make sure that if our house burned down, that we would be reimbursed for that. I wanted to make sure that if our car was in an accident, that we would be reimbursed for that. So I kept the insurance, but I had no relationship with the agent. Salvation is not just an eternal insurance policy. Salvation is not something that, okay, well, whenever needed, I'm going to dial up Jesus Christ, my insurance agent, and just let him know, you know, what I need help with. And as soon as he solves that problem, well, I'm going to fall off the grid for a while until I need him again. We're going to see here in Philippians chapter 3, we've already looked at some of the questions. What is true salvation? We looked at that last Sunday. Who is the supplier of true salvation? Paul, you know, said all of the things that he uh, could add to his credit column, but in the end he said, I counted all those as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. But I want to look today and, and begin to explore more. What is the purpose then of true salvation? What is the purpose of of true salvation? Well, first of all, it's to know Christ. Oh, goodness, Pastor Dave, that's pretty simple. Well, it is, but sometimes when we think, you know, do you know Jesus Christ, your personal Savior? Unfortunately, sometimes our thoughts go back to, well, when did I say that prayer? What day or what date or how old was I when I, I came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? And sometimes it almost stops there, it seems, And what we're going to see in in Philippians 3 and then all throughout Scripture is that knowing Christ is so much more than that. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the the surpassing worth. Already he's using terms here and he's saying, Listen, this is valuable. This is worth investing in. This is worth your effort. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I love how he says that, my Lord. You and I can say the same thing if we know Christ as our Savior. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. There's a personal relationship there. And then Paul goes on. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Now let's just stop for a minute. 
There is sacrifice in coming to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. There is. There are things that will need to be given up. Now, don't ever forget, though, you don't have to give up those things in order to be saved. You first know Jesus Christ, and he will empower you to let go of some of the things that you thought were so dear. But there is loss. In comparison, there's really no comparison at all, but sometimes, you know, unbelievers are like, man, I'd have to give up this and this and this. But once you know Jesus Christ, your personal Savior, and you look back at those things that you thought were so important, you will never regret. And Paul says, For his sake I have suffered loss, the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish. Why? In order that I may gain Christ. Two verses later, in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, he just says the phrase, That I may know him. That I may know him. Now what we're going to do is we, of course, we don't have time to read from you know, Genesis 1-1 and go all the way through the end of Revelation. But I'm going to highlight some of the key characters from Genesis 1 all the way through the end of Revelation just to get an idea of the relational God that we serve. Of the Jesus Christ who desires a personal relationship with every one of us. Think about Adam and Eve. God created them. In his image. He created many things just by spoken, the spoken word. And, but he created Adam in his image and then later Eve in his image. God talked with Adam and Eve. Now I know some of you have pets and you talk to your pets. But whether you believe it or not, your pets don't talk back. Oh, pastor, mine does. I mean, they may, try to, they may communicate with their little eyes or whatever, but there's not the communication like we have between God and humans and between humans and humans. God spoke with Adam and Eve. He instructed them to uh, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. He told them about the garden. And he says, listen, you can eat of every tree, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He, he communicated with them so much so that even after Adam and Eve sinned, we see that God is, is walking through the garden. Adam and Eve have hidden themselves, their, their shame, they're experiencing guilt. They try to cover their nakedness. And then God says, where are you? Showing once again, God pursues us. It's to, to me, it's a phenomenal thing to think back that even though Adam and Eve, I mean, they had one command, one command, but yet they broke that command and still God pursues them and it shows once again a personal relationship. We see in Genesis, in chapter 3, in verse 8 and 9, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Personal relationship with God. We see God's concern for Adam after he had created Adam and all the animals and he saw Adam alone. He says, This is everything is good. This is good. This is good. This is good. But then he said, For Adam to be alone, that's not good. And he made Eve to be a perfect companion and for the two of them to form one flesh. And he showed that he, he had concern for Adam. He wasn't just creating little things that would give him some joy, but he was creating people and humans and beings to have a personal relationship with, beginning all the way back with Adam and Eve. What about Abraham? In the New Testament, we see James 
chapter 2 and verse 23, it says that Abraham was a friend of God. Abraham was a friend of God. You know, it's common as as humans to, to network. Now, we may not call it that, but it's easy as we talk to try to make some connection. And more times than, than is surprising really to me, how often we do have connections with other people. The longer that we talk, you know, we find out, oh, well, so-and-so worked with your brother back in, you know, whatever. Oh, well, my uncle knows your brother's master's dog's aunt. You know, all these things, we, we make some connection, and it gives us some satisfaction to know that in somehow we're connected. Well, Abraham was called a friend of God. James 2.23, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. We see then next, and of course you could look at so many more people throughout Scripture and see how God related with them personally. So I'm just hitting some of the, some of the mountaintops. But think about Jacob. You have Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, so Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Isaac and Rebekah gave birth to two twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Who was born first? Esau. Jacob came out holding on to the heel of Esau. And so his name actually means grabber. Or or another idea that actually his life really showed, especially the beginning part of his life, was usurper or, or the idea of deceiver. And Jacob certainly proved in many times, especially in the beginning of his life, that he was a grabber. He tried to manipulate things, and uh, he, he talked Esau out of the birthright. Of course, Esau was extremely angry and, and pledged to kill Jacob, and Jacob ran off then and for 20 years served Laban, who would be his father-in-law. For seven years he worked, and he, he loved uh, Rachel and was thinking about marrying Rachel and couldn't wait till the day, and the day came, and lo and behold, Laban gave him the older sister, Leah. He was deceived as Jacob had deceived. Now he's getting a dose of his own medicine and he was deceived too. But then he promised, okay, well, if you work for me for seven more years, then you can go ahead and and marry Rachel, but you'll have to work another seven years. And Jacob did exactly that. But after 20 years of putting up with some of these things with his father-in-law, he finally said, all right, that's enough. And he grabbed, he got his servants, his family, his livestock, and they began to to leave, and they left Laban. Laban was not happy at all, in fact, went after them. But at one point, then Jacob found out, okay, Esau, I'm leaving Laban in in the dust here, but I'm, I'm heading back to my country, and Esau is in the route to see me. Okay, he hasn't seen Esau for 20 years or so. Esau pledged and was very angry, listen, I will kill you. So what does Jacob think? This is it. My, my death is surely near. So Jacob begins to think, okay, how can I manipulate? How can I work myself out of the situation? He did pray. If you look back in Scripture, he did pray for God's protection, thankfully. So at least he was recognizing that God had promised a, a great nation of him. And he prayed, God, you've promised a great nation. Will you protect me? But at the same time, Jacob begins to think, what can I do? How can I get myself out of the situation? He begins to divide his group into two groups. And the logic was, well, if one group gets caught by Esau, at least the other group will escape. And then in addition to that, he says, okay, as, as you go ahead of me, then I want you to take the livestock. And he prepared all these lavish gifts to tell my brother Esau, these are gifts from your brother Jacob. 
And Jacob hoped that all of this would appease Esau's anger. So at last we see Jacob, he's with his immediate family and uh, with his closest servants. And then he even sends them across the river Jabbok. And then the scripture says that he is all alone. He's connived, he's manipulated, he's deceived many for many years. He's run from his father-in-law. He's facing his brother who he thinks he wants to kill him. And that night, he wrestled with God. At first, it says that a man had almost seemed like an angelic being. And, and it's an interesting passage to read as, as Jacob is wrestling. And, and finally, Jacob asks, you know, well, what is your name? And, and, and the angel, which later Jacob calls God, says, well, you know, why do you, you know, why do you ask my name? But then it says, God blessed him there. Notice what Jacob said in Genesis chapter 32 and verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. I'm not going to try to, to over uh, uh, look more into this than we should, but I think there's some lessons that we can learn from, from this brief story. Jacob, in a lot of ways, thought, hey, I can figure this out. I can figure my life out. I can figure it out with Esau back in the day. I can figure it out with my father-in-law. But all of a sudden, he is all alone at night. Esau, he thinks, wants to kill him. He certainly can't go back to his father-in-law. And then he wrestles with God. And God shows him in a very clear way, listen, Jacob, you need me. And God even touches his hip. And for the rest of his life, Jacob had a limp. And I think it was a constant reminder that I can't do this alone. I need God with me. Once again, we see God pursuing even Jacob. See, Abraham, Jacob, but then also Joseph. After we went through the book of Colossians, shortly after the, the, the beginning of this church plant, we went through and we studied the life of Joseph. And from the, the high point times when he you know, was given the coat of many colors and he had that special dream, God was with Joseph then. But God was also with Joseph when he was sold into slavery, when he was acute, falsely accused and then thrown into prison, when the cupbearer then forgot about Joseph for two years and Joseph thought, well, goodness, how much longer am I going to be here? God continued to be with Joseph every step of the way. And we see in Genesis chapter 39 and verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. Joseph knew God personally. Years later, then Moses talked with God. Moses' life was saved in a miraculous way when all the babies, the male babies were supposed to have been killed. Moses' life was spared. He lived as a, as a prince and was special instruction and all this special treatment. But then in an effort to protect his people, he, he killed an Egyptian man and fled for his life after he he did that and noticed that this is not going to go over very well. And for 40 years, God was preparing him to lead the nation of Israel. And in Exodus 33, 11, it says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Moses talked with God. 
So we're beginning to see this pattern that God is not this some distant being that, you know, that every once in a while kind of interferes with things, you know, with humans, with men and women. We see that from the beginning of Scripture, Adam and Eve, up till now, and we're going to see even later, God pursues us and wants a personal relationship. And he wants us to pursue knowing him more. The Israelites were led by God as Moses you know, led the group, and I say the group, we're talking maybe two million people. This wasn't just a hike up Kennesaw Mountain. I mean, this was a huge ordeal. And way back before GPS ever existed, there was the, the pillar of fire and then the cloud that led the people of Israel. And they, began to, they were able to see in a visible way, God is with us and he is going before us. God loves us and cares for us. The disciples then, we, we jump now ahead, you know, many, many years, and we just see the disciples of Christ who lived with God. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. To me, this is still amazing. As you think about Emmanuel, God with us, that the disciples and many others in that time frame were able to, to spend time with God the Son, I mean, in a way that is hard to imagine. Some of you, I've only seen short clips of the series, The Chosen, and, and I don't think it uh, is theologically correct in everything that they do. They certainly took a lot of liberties in the story. But why is that interesting to so many people? Because there's a, there's a thought of what could it have been like? What was it like to walk with Jesus? What was it like to see Jesus' miracles? So we see that the disciples had the opportunity to live with God the Son, that he dwelt among them. But then in John, also John chapter 15, all followers of Christ, that's you and me too, we are called friends of God, not just Abraham. God didn't just talk to Moses. God didn't just talk with another patriarch, Jacob. He didn't just stay with Joseph. But every single one of us, we can say, yeah, God's my friend. John chapter 15 and 13 through 15, it says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for who? For his friends. For his friends. I've had some friends do some phenomenal things for me, but not yet once has a friend given his life to save me. I hope I would be the type of friend that would do that for another friend. Jesus Christ is that type of friend. It says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. I'm just going to take a wild guess, but I would imagine that none of you are going to go to Marietta Square Market today for lunch and are going to think, okay, whose table can I sit at and just sit across from and just share my whole life story with a complete stranger? And you're looking around, and you're like... There's the lucky person. And you walk over and you sit down and you go, hi. You know, my name is, let me just tell you my life story. And I want to share my dreams with you. And I want to share my disappointments with you. And today's your lucky day because, like, Pastor Day, I am not going to do that. In fact, our tendency is, if we go to somewhere like Marietta Square Market and it's kind of busy, I mean, we're like hawks trying to find, okay, what table can we reserve for our group? And then if somebody kind of comes and sits near us, we're kind of like, oh, hi. <laughs> you kind of turn your back a little bit. And 
There's not the idea of, okay, let me just, let me just say everything. But Jesus Christ desires that type of relationship with us. That at any moment we can say, God, you already know, but I'm just going to be very open. These are my fears. These are some of my doubts even. These are some of my concerns. But God, these are also some things that I rejoice in. And Lord, help me to know you more. Help me to help my thoughts to reflect your thoughts more. God, help me to become more like you. And God, I want you and Jesus, I want you to be the closest friend that I've ever had. John reminds us that we are called friends. Now notice with me at the very end of Scripture in Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22 and verses 1 through 5. This is an end of a story that surpasses anything that Hollywood can do, anything that Disney can come up with. Uh, I already mentioned that we watched a, a movie together uh, on Friday night, and we try to do that from time to time as, as family night. So get ready for this. We watched the third Anne of Green Gables movie. You know why we watch Anne of Green Gables? Because there are five women in our home. And so Michael and I often get the raw end of the deal, but I will say that the third Anne Green Gables movie was a little better than the first two. There was actually a little bit of war, some action, and Michael about halfway through says, okay, this isn't quite so bad. But as we watched Anne of Green Gables, and we sat through you know, 30 million hours of the first two movies, wondering, is Anne ever going to marry Gilbert? And all throughout the third movie, it's, there were times where it seemed like, you know, this isn't going to happen, and... But in the end, Anne marries Gilbert, and Gilbert comes home from the war, and, and they live happily ever after. You go, oh, wow. Now, does that affect my life today? It doesn't. It's not going to change one thing in, on January 29th of 2023, and it won't affect the rest of my life for this year at all. But look with me in, in Revelation chapter 22, for this is a true end of the story and a promise that we have to look forward to. Look with me. Revelation 22. It'll be on the screen as well. Verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No long will there be anything accursed, Amen? I can't wait for that. I can't wait till the day where I don't have to battle with sin anymore. I can't wait for the day that nothing will be corrupt anymore. I don't have to, to think about, okay, how much sugar intake should I have in my body? I, I mean, I don't have to think about any of that because God says this will be a time where there won't be anything else that will be accursed. There won't be any more adultery, be no more pornography, be no more divorce, no more kids without parents, none of that. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Now notice the next verse. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So we see from the first pages of Scripture in Genesis, the story of Adam and Eve, all the way to the very end of Scripture in Revelation, we see that mankind's existence is meant to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And God pursues us. 
And may we with Paul say, yes, thank God for eternal life. And I thank God that I have that eternal insurance. But so much more than that, Christ, help me to know you more. Help me to pursue you even more. But beyond that, we see also in Philippians chapter 3, what's another purpose? It's to be in Christ. To be in Christ. Notice with me Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. We touched on this quickly last Sunday as we were finishing. But uh, look with me again at Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's phenomenal to me that every single person that accepts Jesus Christ as personal Savior, they receive a new identity. And it's summed up in these two words, and we're actually going to see in growth groups probably nine, and there's many more, but at least nine different benefits that we have of being in Christ. But we focused on last week, and I want to kind of illustrate a little bit differently this week, that we are justified in Christ, that his righteousness is what makes me holy. Several, at the beginning of the the college football season, some of our friends contacted us and uh, sent a text. Uh, it was late at night. Uh, if I remember, I think it was a Saturday evening and, and sent a text. And Troy Mann says, hey, uh, I've got some games for the Georgia Bulldogs opening game, Mercedes-Benz. Uh, would you be interested in going? I'm like, oh, man, that sounds like fun. And then I looked at Kim and I said, you want to come with me? She's like, well, let me look at the calendar. Yeah, I, it's open. I'll go. I'm like, great. So I quickly you know, texted Troy back, hey, we'd love to go. But as we got closer to to that opening game, he sent me the instructions and sent me a link. And so I I clicked on the link, and I was taken to a page, and I saw the name of Jim Starr. Jim Starr is the owner of the electrical company that Troy Mann works for. The tickets were in Jim Starr's name because he's purchased tickets, I think, for all the, the Bulldogs games. And so because of Jim Starr and what he had already done beforehand, I was able to access through that link and through his name, two tickets to get into the stadium and watch the Bulldogs win the game. Amen? So why does that happen? Why is that important? Because in a similar way, the only way that I can enter heaven for eternity is because Jesus Christ has already paid the price. I didn't pay the price. I don't deserve it. But yet through Jesus Christ... And through what his, he can credit to me, his righteousness now becomes my own. And now, not because of anything I've done, but now I have access to spend eternity in heaven because I am in Christ. We see that that is a huge benefit. Paul, of course, last week, as we looked through all of those things, Hebrew of Hebrews and uh, circumcised on the eighth day and all these things, he made the exchange for all that he thought was good and would give him favor for God but he made the exchange for Christ's righteousness, the only thing, actually, that will redeem us. So we're supposed to be in Christ, but then thirdly, what's another purpose? To live in the power of Christ. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Okay, I want to show you a picture here. This is... Um, Red Cliff Bible Camp, it's about two hours outside of Jackson, Wyoming, in, uh, up in the mountains, uh, out of Pinedale, Wyoming. And Audrey and I went uh, 
almost three years ago now, a little, little less than three years, for a, a winter uh, snow retreat. The only way you can get up there during the winter is by snowmobiles and things like that. There's no other way to get up there in the winter. It's a really cool place. But look at the pulpit. So that's the pulpit that I preach behind and have a number of times, and Dad has as well. Uh, Lord willing, uh, Dad and I will be back in July to preach it at Redcliffe here. But look at, at the pulpit there and think with me, what kind of chainsaw did you have to have did the guy use to cut through that log? Do you think it was one of these little six-inchers? You know, electrical, little six-inch chainsaw? Absolutely not. It was a powerful chainsaw. In fact, I would have loved to have been there. I, I love chainsaws. Now, don't get around me if I have a chainsaw, because sometimes things happen, and homes get damaged, and kids get hurt, and things like that. But I love chainsaws. You, I, I'm not kidding. Mary got stitches one time when I had a chainsaw. But anyway, she's still here. I love chainsaws. But the same chainsaw that cut through that, do you think it could cut through a broomstick? What do you think? No problem at all. Because if it can cut through that, then it can cut through a broomstick. Okay, what is the, what's the truth in this? Well, if we can understand and know the power of his resurrection, do you think that power can help us with our daily needs? Oh my goodness, forever sure. Yes! So if we can, as Paul says, listen, I want to know Christ. And in knowing Christ, I want to know the power of his resurrection. If I know the power of his resurrection, then I can be sure that he can help me in every single need that I face. Whether it's with health, my finances, my relationships, here at school, Kennesaw State University, wherever it may be. That power of his resurrection, if I know him and I'm in Christ, that is all that I need. We see that we are in Christ. We can learn and live in the power of his resurrection. Notice how Paul says this a little bit differently in Romans 8 and verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It's only because of Christ's resurrection power that you and I can even be saved in the first place. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But he made us alive again through the resurrection power, through the Holy Spirit. Amen. I think we ought to clap. I mean, I really, I think we ought to clap for that. That is something to be excited about because Jesus Christ, he doesn't just say, hey, little children, here's, here's the life that I give you and you just kind of go through life as you can. No, he says, listen, I conquered death and sin and I've given you the same power that you can live by. I'm not saying this is declare what you want and God's obligated to do it, but I'm saying that God has a purpose for your life and he can bring you through every struggle that you'll ever face. In the darkest nights of an ugly divorce, Christ Jesus is with you. In the darkest nights, and maybe you're sitting in the, next to a hospital bed of someone you love, God is still with you. As you fail the test that maybe you studied for nights and nights, and maybe you're the second time through that class, and you're trying your best, God is still with you. Because of the resurrection power that we can know through him and through him alone. We want power, we want help, but it's only through Christ. Now, another purpose that we see, and this is a purpose that we're not so excited about. This is a purpose that we're not going to clap quickly about, to share in the sufferings 
of Christ. Up till now, you may go, yes, Pastor David, that's it, man. I mean, it's yeah, the power of his resurrection. And yeah, cut through that broomstick. Suffering? I don't know about that. Well, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, look, look again, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Amen. But then it says, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Last week, we talked a little bit about the difference between fiction and fact. You know what fiction salvation is? Fiction salvation is the idea that salvation is only for our prosperity and for our goodness and for our wealth and health. That's fiction salvation. Fiction salvation is to think, no, you know, Christ's gift, when he laid down his life for us as friends that we already read about, that gift wasn't quite enough. In fact, Christ, I want to give you my gift list, and you're obligated to bless me in these ways. And if you're not, well, salvation's really not good enough for me. I want a bigger house. I want a better car. I want more money in my checking account. I want all my kids and family to be healthy. And I want you to bless in this way, in this way, in this way. That is fiction salvation. Paul says here, in fact, this is a, a passage that refutes the prosperity gospel idea. It is not about all that God can give us in material wealth. The best and biggest gift ever was in his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That can never be topped. Can never be topped. And Paul says, I want to know Christ, not just so I can have a good life, not just so I can be successful, but I want to know Christ, and I want to know the power of his resurrection, but I'm also ready, and I want to share in his sufferings. Man, am I ready to do that? Am I ready to say like Paul did? Yeah, I, I want to suffer so I can know Christ better. Let me dial this back a little bit and give you a very simple illustration that I think that all of us will understand. Kim and I have been married for 26 years. I dated her for six years prior to that. So 26 plus 6 is? Man, you're on fire. Okay, 32 years, right? So a long time. In the 32 years that we've known each other, but especially in the last 26 years, imagine if all that I did with Kim were the fun things in life. Hey, Kim, you want to go out on a date? You want to go to Longhorn? Yeah, I'm there. Oh, Kim, you want to go hiking? Sure, I'll go. You want to go shopping? No, count me out. <laughs> you want to do these things? Kim, yeah, I'm there. I'll do these things. Load the dishwasher? No, I'm going to leave that with you. Pull a kid's tooth? No, I'm not real good with blood, Kim. But, you know, do all these... Imagine that if all that I did with Kim were just the fun things in marriage, do you think my relationship with, with her would be as intimate and deep and valuable as it is now? No, it wouldn't. But because we've cried together, we've worked together, we've seen dreams that we thought were maybe God wanted us, but sometimes dreams were dashed, We've been at the bedside of loved ones that are dying and then passed away together. We've done all these things together, and because of that, even after 32 years of marriage, my love continues to increase and grow richer and stronger for a lady named Kimberly Huffman. How much more so with Jesus Christ? That we would say, yes, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection, but Christ, I'm ready, and I'm re I want to suffer also. For you whenever's needed. Another way to think about this is imagine that you're on a, how many of you played organized sports? At some point in your life, you've played on an organized team. Okay, great. 
we're still in football season. Super Bowl's coming up, so let's just stick with football. Imagine if a football player doesn't come to practice, never puts on the pads, he doesn't come to preseason and sweat like crazy in Georgia heat. I remember doing that in high school. He doesn't do any of that. But the first game, he shows up, his hair is slicked back, he's got perfume on, his, his uniform is spotless clean, his, his helmet is shining because he hasn't been in any practice at all. And he shows up, he says, hey coach, put me in, I'm ready. What do you think the other team members would think about that player? You can sit down, dude. This is our game. We've practiced, we put in the sacrifice, now it's our turn. Unfortunately, many of us in the Christian life, we aren't really interested in suffering for Christ. We don't want to put in the time to look at his word. We don't want to talk to God as a friend. Maybe when we have a need, okay. We don't want to sacrifice for the Lord. No, don't, don't ask me to commit too much because, man, I'm busy chasing, chasing all my other dreams. I'm exhausted. Don't ask me to do too much other things for Christ. I mean, I've got all these other things in life. However, we want Christ to bless us. We want to have a good life. We want our health to be intact. We want our finances to be stable. We want to be on God's side, but we really aren't too interested about suffering for Christ. Paul says, no, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now the next verse will remind us that any suffering that we ever face for Jesus Christ will be so minimal in comparison to the glory that's promised in him. Look with me in Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. It'll be up on the screen as well. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order, notice this, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Boy, that's a promise that we have. That yes, there's going to be times where we have to suffer. You may lose a job promotion because of your faith in Christ. You may not be the most popular student at Northwest Classical Academy or, or Kennesaw State University or wherever you may be because of your faith in Jesus Christ. You may not be the, the most popular neighbor in your community because you, know, you believe in Jesus and you live for Jesus. However, we see here that all of that will be so minimal compared to the glory that we'll have in him. Lastly, look with me in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 11. Another purpose of true salvation, and this is often what many think about, first of all, is to spend eternity with Christ. So salvation is not only that, but it certainly includes that, and I'm thankful for that. Because even as long as I feel like my life has been at 46 years old, I have a little bit of an understanding that that is so tiny of a, t of a time compared to all eternity. And I'm thankful that all that I have to look forward to is not just in this life. Not just as a David Huffman who lived in Georgia and Brazil and other places, but as someone who my citizenship is in heaven. Look with me in Philippians chapter 3, verse 11, that by any means... That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We'll see next week a little bit more how our citizenship in heaven, that every single one of us who knows Christ our Savior, that's our true citizenship. 
You may hold a different document in your hand, or you may have a different type of driver's license, or you may have a different country where you were born in, but every one of us that knows Christ our Savior has the same citizenship, and that's in heaven. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15, and he uses about 50 verses to, to expound upon and to explain the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that is important to us. In fact, at one point he says, listen, if Christ's resurrection weren't true, then, then of all people, we're to be more pitied. In essence, this is all in vain. If this final truth is not true, then the other things really don't make a whole lot of sense if there's not a future for, you know, for us in it. But yet Paul comes back and he, he continues to say no, but it is true. And he talks all about the resurrection. And then we get to 1 Corinthians 15, 58, and it says this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So Paul says, and as he said in Philippians, as he was challenging the Philippian church, you do have a promise of eternal life. You can look forward to that resurrection. Why? Because Christ Jesus resurrected from the dead. Because the power of his resurrection is true. It's factual. So many people saw it personally. Then since then, so many have given their life for the cause of Christ because it is a true message. And we have that resurrection to look forward to as well, to spend an eternity with Christ. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we finish this morning.